0: Jesus teaching about discipleship. Christianity is not a spectator sport. Uh, We're not called to merely consume. We're called to contribute. And God has gifted us spiritually. God has gifted us naturally with different talents we have and abilities we have. And uh, we want to give you a chance, whatever that looks like, uh, to be able to serve. There are countless ways to do so. Um, So we created this card. Each one of you guys should have had it um, in your bulletin when you walked in. There's numerous different things, numerous different categories Uh, for ways that we could use your help to build up the body of Christ so that we can be healthy, so that we can be fully functioning in all the ways we want to serve our community and all the ways we want to serve one another. So uh, check it out, whatever clicks for you. Uh, Mark it down, put your name, ways we can be in touch. Take it to the Connect desk, throw it in the offering box, whatever it takes. Just get it in one of our hands and a different ministry leader will be in touch for you. We'd love to help you find a way to serve. All right, the Gospel of Mark. If you guys remember from last week, uh, we began a new sermon series. We are diving right into the middle of Jesus' fast-paced ministry. Uh, The Gospel of Mark really starts out with a bang. Uh, You know, Luke has these prologue chapters about Jesus' birth. Matthew has these initial chapters about Jesus' connection to the Old Testament. Mark has none of that. It starts off with a bang Um, Mark uses the word immediately over and over again because Jesus is immediately doing one thing to the next. Um, And we're not only diving into a fast-paced book, we're diving into the middle of a fast-paced book. So things are well on their way uh, in Jesus' ministry. Mark chapter 3 through 5, he's been teaching, he's been healing, he's been confronting religious leaders. His fame has spread throughout the region. We saw that last week. Um, Crowds are gathering around him to hear his teaching, to experience his healing. Crowds are gathering from all four directions. Um, One of the things that Jesus was most miraculously doing uh, was healing people from demon possession. Um, And that's going to come to the forefront of some controversy that Jesus experiences today from the religious leaders. But despite all the crowds... Despite this huge movement that he's created, that's not really what Jesus is interested in, at least yet. Um, you remember when he heals the man with a demon, the demon cries out, You are the Christ, you are the Son of God. Jesus actually silences that demon because he doesn't want this word to spread quite yet. He's not interested in creating a huge crowd, a huge movement yet. Instead, what he's focused on now, and we saw this last week, is calling out of the crowds, Disciples. And we saw him list the 12 disciples and appoint them to be with him. And that's what we see today. Jesus is going to be in a house with his disciples, teaching them. Um, And there's going to be two confrontations with some religious leaders and with his own family. Um, The religious leaders are going to use this name for Satan uh, that's less common. This name is Beelzebul. We don't actually know where it derives from. Um, it's kind of a cryptic word. It's not used that often in the New Testament. Uh, most of the time, when the New Testament's referring to uh, the devil or the chief evil one, uh, like Jesus will, they use the name Satan, uh, which, is, which is a word for accuser. But when we see that word Beelzebul today, that's who these religious leaders are talking about, Satan, the devil. All right, so let's read these verses, and then we'll dive in. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35 Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize Jesus, for his family was saying, Jesus is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And Jesus called the scribes to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan rises up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. And Jesus' mother and his brothers came, and standing outside the house, they sent to Jesus and called him. And a crowd was sitting around Jesus, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside the house seeking you. And Jesus answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, Jesus said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God... He is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Almost 100 years ago, during the 1940s, the British broadcasting company, the BBC, they broadcast a series of essays written by a literary professor from Oxford University. His name was Clive Staples Lewis, or he's more well known as C.S. Lewis. And these broadcast essays were eventually put in published form in the form of a book, and the book was called Mere Christianity. And you could argue, I think, that this book was the most influential Christian book of the entire 20th century. It's been published hundreds of thousands, if not millions of times, and God has used mere Christianity to convert many to the Christian faith. It's been a source of discipleship and instruction for countless others who've already uh, believed. My copy is in my library in my office. I read it a few years after I became a believer in my early 20s, and I found it tremendously helpful as it articulates why we should believe in God and more specifically, why we should believe in the Christian God. But the most famous paragraph in this most famous book is what is referred to as Lewis' liar, lunatic, lord argument. Here's how the paragraph reads. Lewis writes, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Well, that is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut Jesus up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You see, Lewis was perceiving this indifference toward Jesus. Lewis lived in England where Christianity had been the established religion for centuries, and he started to discern in people a sort of indifference and neutrality toward Jesus. Lewis especially points out how people would sort of sideline Jesus by labeling him a great moral teacher. But Lewis makes the point that the authentic Jesus won't let us get away with such a watered-down assessment of himself. So, for example, think about that important verse from Mark chapter 1 in verse 15. We looked at it last week. Uh, That verse sets the tone for the entire gospel of Mark. And these are the very first spoken words of Jesus from this entire gospel. Here's what Jesus says. Quote, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I mean, what an audacious and bold claim. With his very opening words, Jesus essentially says here, with my arrival, the point of history is at a climax. With my arrival, the kingdom of heaven has come to earth, and you all now need to repent of your sin and pledge your allegiance to me and my gospel. Those are his very first words in the gospel of Mark. Now, there have been great moral teachers in the ancient world. There's been some moral teachers in our own time. Uh, you think of Jordan Peterson. I would say he's pretty much an ethics and philosophy teacher who is wildly popular, but there are many others. But they don't say stuff like Mark chapter 1, verse 15. These guys will talk about character and virtue and truth and love and justice, but they don't say things like, "...with my arrival the time is fulfilled." With my arrival, the kingdom of God is here. With my arrival, everyone everywhere should repent and believe my message. Our moral teachers don't say things like that. And yet many in Lewis' day and many today want to sort of neutralize Jesus by labeling him simply as a great moral or great religious teacher. Lewis says the authentic Jesus will have none of that. The claims that Jesus made about himself force the issue he is either a lying deceiving devil or he is a crazy self-obsessed lunatic or he is the lord of heaven and earth those are our options lewis says or think about even the very first verse in mark's gospel this isn't jesus speaking but it is one of his authorized biographers and one of his disciples mark first verse right off the bat chapter one verse one This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So if you just read one verse into this gospel, the first verse of Jesus' biography, then you are confronted with the claim that Jesus is the promised Messiah. You are confronted with the assertion that Jesus is the prophesied Christ. And not only that, but He is God's own Son. I mean, these are not disregardable allegations. As Lewis says, quote, you must make your choice. This guy is either a pathological liar, a looney tune madman, or he is Lord of all. And here's the thing. The people around Jesus during his life, they knew this about him. Based on the things he said, based on the reports they heard about him, they could sense, we got to make a judgment call on this guy. We can't discount what he's saying. We can't discount what he's doing. He's saying things that are too out there. He's doing things that are too fantastical. And what we see in today's passage are two different responses to Jesus from two different groups of people. We see two different responses to who Jesus is from two different groups of people. The first group are the religious scribes from Jerusalem. These were Israel's authorized, formal teachers of God's law. They were the elite religious teachers from the religious capital of God's people, Jerusalem. And they conclude, Jesus is a lying devil. Look back at verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of demons... Jesus casts out demons. So this is the formal declaration and decision from the Jerusalem establishment. Jesus is a devil. These are the religious elites, the religious authorities coming down to tell the town people in the countryside of Galilee how it really is. Don't be deceived. Don't get too excited. Jesus is not worthy of your devotion. He's not the Christ. He's not the Son of God. He's a devil. That's their conclusion. Now, to their credit, at least these religious leaders weren't indifferent toward Jesus. Again, they realized the weightiness of the things he was saying. They realized the power of what he was doing. But they conclude that what Jesus says are lies... And they conclude the power he's operating by is of the devil. And Jesus responds to them with a simple, logical refutation. He says in the following verses, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, it cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, then Satan cannot stand, but he's coming to an end. Jesus says, Satan is too self serving to destroy himself. In other words, if I'm possessed by Satan, why am I casting Satan out of people? It makes no sense. Instead, Jesus goes on to clarify in verse 27. He says, I didn't come to work for Satan. I came to steal from Satan. You got to love this, right? Jesus likens himself to a thief. And it's not the only time he does that. Sometimes he's more irreverent than we are. Jesus says, I have come as a thief to bind up, tie up Satan, and take what has been his. There's this great line in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The Apostle John writes, The Son of God came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. That's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus says to these religious guys, Are you blind? I didn't come as Satan's employee. I came as his rival. I came to free the oppressed. I came to deliver captives. And and then Jesus shares some of the most sobering words of judgment in the entire New Testament. The official delegation, they made their judgment about Jesus, that he's a devil. So now he hands down his formal opinion about them. He starts it off with this very proper and official sounding, truly I say to you. He talks like this to get their attention. He talks like this to convey authority truly i say to you all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter now let's just pause there for a second and praise god amen, amen. jesus the christ the son of god says in truth i declare all kinds of sins all sorts of sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Jesus says that God is the most indiscriminately forgiving being ever. He forgives all kinds of sins. You got some crazy wild stories of stuff you've done. Anybody out there got some jaw-droppingly scandalous sins you've committed? Jesus says God is able God is willing to forgive all sorts of sins. God is able and willing to forgive any variety of blasphemies. Verse 29, but whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For these guys were saying, Jesus has an unclean spirit. So Jesus says when you get to the place where these religious scribes are then you're in an unforgivable position. These scribes evaluated Jesus, the incarnation of good, and estimated Him to be evil. So the scribes had sort of backed themselves into an inescapable corner when it came to their judgment on Jesus. No matter how much good Jesus ever did, they interpreted it as evil. Oh, he's delivering people from demonic oppression? Well, he's doing it by the power of demons. New Testament scholar Tom Wright likens these scribes to those who've been swayed by conspiracy theories. You know someone, once they've bought into a conspiracy theory, all the evidence against the theory somehow always works out to end up supporting the theory. It's because the interpretive lens through which the conspiracist looks at the evidence forces the evidence to work in the theory's favor. That's the kind of situation that these scribes are in with Jesus. No matter the great good Jesus ever did, and he did a lot of good, That's why these crowds are so drawn to him. No matter how much good he did, his good works are always evaluated as evil. He casts out Satan by Satan. And that's why these guys were unforgivable, because they were in this self-affirming feedback loop, stuck judging Jesus as a devil. So Jesus here is calling for our ultimate commitment to him, by challenging our religious assumptions. Jesus here is calling for our ultimate commitment to himself by challenging our religious assumptions. Think about this. These scribes were the established, formal, authorized, educated teachers of God's people. And their assessment of God's Son is completely backwards. It's the exact opposite of the truth. Jesus is God's son. They judge him to be God's enemy. Jesus is the anointed Christ. They say he's a cursed devil. So if these guys had the religious pedigree that they did and they got Jesus completely wrong, then how do we think we are to ever make ourselves right with God based on our own religious effort? Oh, I got sprinkled as a baby. I went through confirmation. I walked the aisle and prayed the sinner's prayer. I attend mass. I give money. I wear a cross. I've read the Bible. I serve the community. All that religious effort, all those religious deeds that I just mentioned, is nothing compared to these scribes. Their lives were completely centered around the idea of serving God. Their whole culture in Jerusalem was completely centered around the idea of serving God. And yet, when God showed up, they counted Him a devil. Such is the deceptive power of our hearts. Church, let's be warned. Let's not be self-satisfied with our religious achievements. Let's not trust in our religious Resume, instead, let's pray for an encounter with the authentic Jesus. Instead, let's pray that the Spirit of God would make known the Son of God deep in our hearts. And let's repent. Let's repent of being impressed with ourselves. Let's repent of being impressed with our religious resume. And let's exclusively commit ourselves to the majesty of king jesus let's fully give ourselves to the beauty of king jesus so that's the first group who shares their evaluation of jesus the scribes say that he's a lying devil but the second group to share their opinion is his family and they say he's crazy like the scribes, his family is well aware of what Jesus is now saying about himself. They are well aware of the reports they're hearing about what he's done for others. And they can't overlook this anymore. They can't remain indifferent any longer. So backing up to verses 20 and 21, the family leaves Nazareth. They head toward Capernaum and Galilee where Jesus is ministering. They go to the house where Jesus is with his disciples, and verse 21 tells us that they went out to seize Jesus, for the family was saying, he is out of his mind. So the family's thinking, we got to get a control of Jesus. We got to get a hold of him, talk some sense into him, because he is, quote, out of his mind. So unlike the scribes, they don't think Jesus is evil. They just think he's nuts. Like he's talking about being the son of God, bringing the kingdom of God the Christ. What is he smoking? Jesus is cuckoo for Cocoa Pops, according to his family. So they're going to grab him. They're going to drag him back to Nazareth and talk some sense into him. You're giving the family a bad name, Jesus. Got these guys' attention from Jerusalem even. Verse 31 picks the story back up. Jesus' mother and his brothers came. They were standing outside the house. They sent to Jesus and called him. And a crowd was sitting around Jesus, and the crowd said to Jesus, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. So Jesus is in this crowded house, likely teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God or perhaps healing those who were sick. Either way, word spreads through the crowd that His family is outside the house looking for him, so surely Jesus is a well mannered, respectful son and brother. Surely he will honor his mother and siblings and allow them to come in. But again, almost irreverently towards his mom, Jesus responds to this by saying, Who are my mother and my brothers? Who are my mother and my brothers? And then looking around at those who sat at his feet, Jesus said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, mother, sister. In other words, Jesus says, My family's already in the house, my family's already with me, my disciples. My family's in here, those who do the will of God by repenting of sin, believing in my gospel, and sitting at my feet as my disciples. My, bro- my brother, mother, sister are already in here. So, once again, Jesus is challenging us towards ultimate commitment. Jesus is challenging us towards full allegiance to Him by reorienting our family loyalty. He's reorienting our family loyalty. Now we don't feel this quite the same way that other cultures do, but for these ancient Jews and for many today in the more eastern parts of the world, family is everything. Biological family is the most important value in their culture by far, for these ancient Jews and for many in the east today. I remember when I was 20 years old, I became a believer in Jesus, and one of my best friends at the time was Indian. He had been one of my closest friends since elementary school. He was from India. He grew up in an Indian family before he migrated to the States, a Hindu family. And I remember we went to an IHOP, got breakfast right after I became a believer, and I shared with him how God had turned my life upside down. I had become a follower of Jesus. And kind of towards the end of the conversation, I'll never forget, my friend said, CT, even if Christianity is true, Even if Jesus is really who he said he is, I would still rather be in hell with my family than become a Christian. And that just did not compute for me. As someone from a Western context, as someone from a more individualist culture, we typically do not have that kind of allegiance to family like people from the East do. So you feel the weight of Jesus of what he's saying in this moment. Who is my mother? Who is my brother? My mother is not simply the woman who gave birth to me. My brother is not simply the men I share parents with. My brother and sister and mother are my disciples. Those who do the will of God, believing the gospel, trusting in the Christ. We have this saying. I'm sure you're familiar with it. It goes... Blood is thicker than water. Blood is thicker than water. And what this saying means is that familial bonds are the most important bond. And the origin of this saying apparently goes back even 700 years to Germany. And the water in the phrase was a reference to the waters of baptism. So the original saying didn't simply mean familial bonds are most important. It was meant to mean that familial bonds are more important than the bond created through baptism. It was meant to communicate that biological family ties are stronger than spiritual ties. But friends, what Jesus says here is the exact opposite. Who is Jesus' mother, brother, sister? those who do the will of God. Jesus is redefining spiritual family as those who sit together at his feet as his disciple. Is Jesus saying biological family is not important? No. Biological family is still important. The rest of the New Testament bears witness to that. But he is saying that spiritual family is most important. The waters of baptism that unite us throughout the ages and around the world, that water is stronger than the shared blood between biological families. Let me put it in these terms. There are Christians in China who just a few hours ago gathered for Lord's Day worship. Some of these Chinese were in basements underneath homes. Some of them were crammed into apartments in skyscrapers. These believers don't look like you. They don't talk like you. They don't dress like you. They don't smell like you. They don't eat like you. They don't think like you. They don't anything like you. But if you are in Christ, then you are closer with those Chinese Christians than you are with your unbelieving siblings who live across town. Let me put it in these terms. There are brothers and sisters who vote differently than we do. They have political leanings on the different side of the aisle than we do. But what Jesus is doing is saying that the bond we have in Christ supersedes the political bond that we have with those we vote alike with. There is a spiritual, eternal bond between believers in Jesus that supersedes family ties and certainly supersedes political ties. This is really important for me to say. We are just a couple of months away from 2024. So I want you to let this sink in. You are closer with your brothers and sisters in Jesus who vote differently than you than you are with the people you vote alike, especially if they're unbelievers. There is a spiritual, eternal bond that supersedes family ties and certainly supersedes political ties. So we've got to ask ourselves, how are you prioritizing spiritual family in your life? If you claim to be Christian, if you claim to be a believer in Jesus, then we must say with him, my family are those who do the will of God. So how are you living out this part of your discipleship that God's family is your family? Do you prioritize worship with your spiritual family? Are you in a life group cultivating deeper relationships with spiritual family? Are you on a ministry team like we're talking about today? Are you on a ministry team so that you can serve your spiritual family? If not, with any one of those things, we would love to get you connected. It's not just because we want to have more people serving in kids. It's not just because we want more and more life groups. It's because we want to see what Jesus is talking about right here, actualized in the life of Woodside Royal Oak. We wanna see us exist and act and think like spiritual family. So we'd love to help you get connected, start to live, start to serve in this kind of way, but this is how Jesus challenges us toward ultimate allegiance to him. He challenges our religious assumptions. He reorients our family loyalty. Lewis was absolutely right. You can love Jesus, you can hate Jesus, But you cannot ignore Jesus. Friends, there is no neutral stance when it comes to the Nazarene. He's just one of those polarizing figures. I would say he is the most polarizing figure, and he forces the issue. Who do you say that he is? Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he a lying devil, as the scribes said? Is he a raving lunatic, as his family said, or is he the Lord, as he himself said? Apathy is not an option. Indifference is not an option. This guy is evil, or this guy is crazy, or this guy is who he said he is, and he is worthy of our entire devotion. He's worthy of more devotion than a mere religious teacher. He's worthy of more devotion than biological